Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today we are glad to have Adam Shapiro with us. He's the co-author of a wonderful book called Science and Religion, a very short introduction published by Oxford University Press. And this is the second edition of the book, which was uh, just released a few months ago in 2022. Uh, Adam, glad to have you with us. Thank you for having me. It's uh, customary to ask our guests to introduce themselves a little and tell us how they became interested in their area of expertise. You're a historian of science. So tell us a little about yourself and how you got interested in the topic of, in the history of science and especially this fascinating topic of science and religion. Absolutely. Um, I think that my story is actually similar to a lot of historians of science who start out their academic careers thinking they're going to be scientists and then either deciding that that wasn't for them or getting interested in questions that didn't necessarily fall within the sciences themselves. Um, For me, I started out as a physics student and ended up uh, as an undergraduate studying both physics and religious studies. And so that led me, as you mentioned, into a a doctoral degree in the history and philosophy of science, uh, looking initially to sort of see why it is that those two fields that seemingly couldn't be more far apart, um, actually sometimes raised questions that informed one another. Uh, During the course of, of my study, I began to realize that to some extent, I was less interested in figuring out whether these sort of abstract philosophical ideas were necessarily right, and more interested in the question of why it was that people believe the things that they do. What was it about these ideas that they found appealing? What was it about the way that these ideas were communicated from one community or one uh, generation to the next that gave them some kind of staying power? And so for me, the answer to that question was found by looking more and more into its history. Uh, And so that's what I ended up pursuing as a degree. I wrote my first book on the politics of uh, high school biology education in the United States and the controversies over the teaching of evolution. Um, And then more broadly from there began to ask questions about how science and religion became this sort of central argument within our sort of intellectual history. Uh, you just mentioned about the history of uh, teaching evolution in the United States, which is a fascinating topic that you talk about in the book, and uh, we'll get to that soon. And it's always interesting to see scientists or physicists, you know, become uh, getting interested in this uh, history of science, and especially between history of science uh, and religion. So uh, with this book, it's a very timely book, as a matter of fact, and the reason is that uh, in the past two or three years, there have been uh, still people arguing whether whether we need religion or science with the pandemic. And some say that uh, the recent pandemic proved we don't need religion anymore. But again, there were uh, there were lots of people who sought who sought solace in religion. But anyway, uh, I, I know that's a difficult question. But may, perhaps you could just give us the main argument of the book to us in in a couple of sen- a couple of minutes, and then we'll uh, break it down. Yeah, I think if if there's one thing I think is the real takeaway from the book, um, I feel like it's it's not useful to necessarily say that the his, that science and religion have a complex relationship. That that's 
that's a sentence that doesn't really mean a whole lot. Complexity is just sort of a word we use when we don't understand something or can't describe it. What we try to show is that the reason why that relationship is the way it is has to do with the different ideas that scientific theories or religious ideas discuss, but more and more also have to do with questions about culture and state power, um, about the way that institutions use this, and the way that science and religion has sort of evolved into a rhetorical trope that, to some extent, really characterizes the discourse of modernity, if you will, that that to be able to talk about science and religion as two discrete ways of thinking is itself something that occurred in a specific place in time. And it's not timeless. It's not eternal. It's not the only way that people structure their thought. And understanding that it could be other ways, and there are reasons why it has become the way it is, uh, that we think about science on one side and religion on the other side, and then ask if they can get along or ask if they conflict, um, is actually... A more com- it is more complicated, but it's more complicated for these reasons, for these historical and, and political reasons. Uh, and in this book, you talk about uh, this thing called conflict theory. And then you say that we need to move from conflict theory to something, to, 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 the, to this complexity thesis. Uh, so to get the discussion started, I was wondering if you could just define what conflict theory is and, and also complexity theory. And also tell us, on page two of the book, a quote from the book, you write that, although the idea of warfare between science and religion remains widespread and popular, most recent academic writing on the subject has undermined this hypothesis of an inevitable conflict. And then unpack this quote, because I'm sure it comes, uh, when I talk to my friends, it comes as a surprise to them when I say, well, throughout history, science and religion have really coexisted and there wasn't really much of a conflict. I think you can put your finger on on really one of the criti- critical points here is that um, there's a real disconnection between where academic studies of religion and science as a social and historical phenomenon are and what sort of the popular belief about religion and science are. And for someone like myself who has taught undergraduate seminars in science and religion, who has taught a variety of history of science classes or, uh, or spoken to classes in religious studies, getting from that popular understanding, the, the exposure that people might get just from following kind of news stories in the media, uh, to understanding why the academic debate looks so different is often really the biggest challenge. Um, it kind of requires thinking a little bit differently about these topics. And yet almost as soon as you make that transition, and that this is, I think, really what the introduction to the book is trying to do, um, as soon as you make that transition, a lot of things begin to fall into place and and the kind of weird things that you sometimes hear and you say, why is this person making this argument? Why is this person even making a reference to this text or to that theory? Uh, begin to make a bit more sense. Um, you know, usually when we ask people, even when we just say the word science and religion, it, I think it almost always 
produces this sort of instinctive frisson um, that people already assume that they're asking a question of, well, how am I supposed to relate one to the other? If you asked me what the opposite of science is, maybe I would even say religion. Um, but the nature of the academic debate has has moved in a lot uh, of directions since then. So for a long time, they weren't separate. They were very convergent. And that's really where the conflict theory comes in. Um, the conflict theory first really got its name in the late 19th century. And this was put forward by people who basically described uh, – a history of the intellectual trajectory of the world that in their mind had a very clear end point in sight, which was the ultimate triumph of enlightenment rationality over the forces of superstition. In other words, science and the processes of scientific understanding were going to gradually uncover more and more truths that would replace the claims of truth that religion gave us. And Ultimately, anytime science advanced some sort of new discovery, that reduced the space for religious belief or the need for religious belief. The way that this was presented as a conflict is that often it was scientists or champion people, self-described champions of science, who would say that religion, both in terms of a mindset that permeated culture and in terms of the institutions that held a lot of, of political and cultural power, um, would stand in the way. And so they point to events like the Catholic Church's persecution of Galileo is often sort of one of the very first and sort of fundamental sort of origin stories of this conflict myth. Um, but then also religious reactions against Darwinism or against other scientific theories, claims that religion stood in the way of medical science and the use of things like anesthetics or against the use of vaccination later on. Um, this was a very self-serving story because it suggested that there was a fight, a fight that was worth participating in, and it also sort of presented a picture of who was in the moral right in that fight, that science was, if you will, not doing this out of any sort of self-interest. It was disinterestedly discovering truth, which offended people who did have a self-interest, the people in who held power because religion had established, you know, patriarchy and religion had established sort of other mechanisms of, of class and caste structures. And so they saw this as a way to fight back against these entrenched powers that they associated with religion. Unfortunately for the people who were champions of science who, uh, who used this conflict thesis, it just doesn't hold up to historical scrutiny. Um, almost every one of the examples that they hold up as sort of exemplary cases of religion oppressing science end up looking a lot more complicated when you deal down into the details of what's really going on. Often it's really the case that you have a clash between two different religious groups or two different ideas or interpretations of religious ideas, and science and nature are brought into the debate on both sides to arbitrate some debate. Um, and it can be as fundamental as whether or not humans are created in the image of God, 
or it can be as practical as whether or not it is necessary for people who are partaking communion to drink from the same cup, which can be a problem if you believe in germ theory. Um, and so there are examples of this that go that run the gamut. Um, so about 25 to 30 years ago, historians of science really started pushing forward what eventually became known as the complexity narrative or the complexity thesis, really to argue that the conflict story was historically flawed. Um, so historians like John Brooke, Ron Numbers, many others who were writing at the time, uh, really kind of pushed forward this narrative of complexity that said sometimes science and religion get along, sometimes they do conflict, sometimes they don't really engage one another. It really depends on the specific science and the specific religion. We can't have a single totalizing narrative. And that was really an important corrective to a world that still believes very much in conflict. What Thomas and I are trying to do in the book is to sort of say, so what now? What do we do 30 years later? Okay, we've, I think, convinced at least most people who have paid academic level attention to this debate. Um, we've convinced everybody that complexity at least makes sense, but can we can we get any further? Can we do more than just say, oh, there isn't a single simple narrative? Um, can, we, can we understand a bit more about what makes that complexity so complex? And for us, some of the questions about that have to do with the role of state bodies in using science and religion as a tool of power, especially in colonial history. Um, it also has to do with the way that science and religion um, become a certain kind of rhetoric that gets used to, to articulate what we often call the culture wars right now. Um, it looks at the idea really that science and religion has become kind of a, a a thing that lives on its own. It, it, it has become a, a thing that sometimes when you look at an event that is very clearly part of science and religion, it's sometimes hard to tell which part of that is the science and which part of that is the religion. Yeah, you 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 actually talked about a lot of interesting points, and uh, we're gonna unpack some of them hopefully throughout the uh, throughout the interview. Uh, one of them, which is one one of my fascinating, let's say, hobbies, is one of my fascinating. One of my hobbies is reading the history of Middle Ages, and uh, there are again a lot of examples of not, a lot of misconceptions of how, for example, a church stopped the progress of science, which is wrong, of course. And you you just pointed out a few of them, but uh, let us talk about in in the first chapter of your book, you talk about. Uh, uh, scientific experience, let's say scientific observations in telling a spiritual experience, and I guess a lot, a lot of early scientists such as uh, Newton or Boyle, they did uh, conceive of science, uh, pursuit of science as a way of understanding the world and also understanding God. So my question is that: Are there any? You do point out some similarities between, let's say, scientific observations and a religious experience. So can a scientific observation entail a spiritual? I'm not going to use the term religious because it's a difficult category to, to, to describe. Can a religious, sorry, a scientific observation entail this spiritual experience? Or are there any sort of similarities between the two? I think that for certain scientists, there absolutely is. And I think that that's one of the real challenges is to describe this on one level as 
a phenomenon about the relationship between theories or practices that are generally accepted within the sciences. And then to talk about the individual motivations that specific scientists or specific members of a religious community, specific clergy or theologians, uh, the motivations that they individually have or the psychology of how they themselves understand what they are doing. Um, There are many examples today of scientists who see what they are doing as part of a quest of understanding the world that the God that they believe in created. And so for them, the question is often the case of either how or why was the world created the way that it is. And doing science is a way to, partially at least, answer those questions. Um, In the earlier period that you alluded to with people like Robert Boyle or Isaac Newton, that was very often much more explicitly the case uh, that this is what natural philosophy was about. Um, And to some extent, natural philosophy rested on certain assumptions that only made sense within a religious framework. The idea that there were laws of nature, the idea that if you repeated a cause, it would have the same effect was not something that was necessarily obvious. Uh, It's not something that you can just take for granted. And to some of these people, the argument for the existence of of a natural law was the idea that the world itself was created in an orderly and good way. And that therefore we could do experimental philosophy. We could conduct experiments and expect that repeating those experiments would give us some kind of repeatable and more robust knowledge of the world. That the assumption there is that to some extent it's it's because of the way that the world was created that makes it intelligible to us. Um, turning that on its side, there were theologians at the same time who said the intelligibility of nature, the ability of us to do something like science and get truths about nature is actually a proof that God wants us to, to explore and understand even more. Um, so that, so there's this sort of mutually reinforcing element in which certain religious worldviews, especially in kind of European Christendom, where we often locate the origins of contemporary modern science, um, sort of intellectually, um, the assumptions there were this kind of back and forth between what we would now consider to be religious ideas and scientific ideas. Um, uh, in your book, you come up with three three groups of people who have been responsible, who have been proposing, who have proposed, sorry, uh, who have been advocating for this idea of an eternal conflict between science and religion. And uh, it starts with uh, enlightenment, uh, enlightenment rationalists, and then uh, in England we have Victorian scientific elites, people like us, like such as uh, Huxley. And in 21st and 22nd century we have the new atheists, uh, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. So how are these three groups, uh, how have these three groups been, been, been uh, let's say, advocating this idea of an eternal conflict? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, and I don't know that I would say that all three of those groups do so in the exact same way. Let, let, I, wanna, I, I, I don't want to 
make that assumption. Um, but what I think is, is important is to recognize that the conflict theory is a theory of history, which doesn't just mean it's a description of the events of the past, but it's a theory of change. It's a theory of how things in history affect one another and lead to future events. So to me, one of the great issues with the conflict theory is not just that historically events in science and religion have not always been stories of conflict. To me, the great challenge of the conflict theory is the assumption that scientific ideas and religious ideas and the logical incompatibilities between them, that the ideas on their own are sufficient to drive that history forward. Uh, The way I've sometimes described it when I've been teaching this in the classroom is to say ideas don't fight. People fight. And they use ideas when they do it. And so with the groups of people that you've mentioned, sort of from the early days of the Enlightenment to the 19th century, sort of Victorian science uh, to the new atheist movement of the day, in each of those cases, you see groups of people who are fighting for something and who are harnessing ideas about science and religion to do so. And so we can both ask whether they're invocation of those ideas is historically accurate, but we can also ask essentially what's really driving you to fight for the things that you're fighting. Um, In the case of, in many cases, what this had to do was the fact that religion was often associated with certain kinds of political or, um, or economic or cultural power. And certainly in the case of someone like, uh, Andrew Dixon White, who's one of the one of the founding fathers, if you will, of the conflict thesis. Uh, White was the first president of Cornell University. He felt that Cornell's founding as a institution of higher learning was being opposed by various people for religious reasons, and so he crafted a narrative that not only said religion has oppressed science, but that religion's oppression of science is both unjustified and fundamentally destined to fail, partly as a self-serving narrative to kind of create the political and intellectual capital to get his own um, university off the ground. In the mid-19th century as well, certainly in the United States, um, one of the other major writers on the conflict thesis, John Draper, if you look at Draper's work, it's not just specifically religion that oppresses science, it's primarily the Catholic Church. And of course, he's writing this at a time when there is a rise in Catholic immigration into the United States. Draper's sort of nativism and anti-Catholicism is is pretty well apparent, not just in, in the sense of it allegedly oppressing science, but more generally. And so these narratives when we ask the question, why are you fighting and why are you choosing to invoke science and religion when you're fighting? We, we often have to look to, to what the deeper reasons are. So to some extent, these were racialized to some extent, these were about who was empowered. Um, in the UK, it was the case that the Anglican church served as a broker of power for much of the time in the 19th century and and earlier, um, that 
the Catholic, the, not the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church provided access uh, to certain benefits in society. And there were debates for centuries about whether religious toleration would become both legal and not just legal, but kind of socially permissible um, over and above whether it was legal. And the debates over that did affect science. And these scientists who said, now we no longer need the authority of the church to pronounce on things like what makes human beings different from other species, uh, saw that what they were doing was sort of creating a political space for reform. Uh, The debate over Darwin's theory of evolution or of theories of evolution that had come earlier were deeply tied up to questions about whether or not people were if you will, born into certain intellectual or moral positions in life, if they were destined for certain kinds of work, or whether they could improve themselves, uh, whether their mental and physical traits were hereditary, and if they were sort of destined by biology. All of that's going on in the debate over what something like, did human beings evolve from other species? Are we closely related to other species? Or are we completely separate and, you know, by, because we were directly created by God, are we somehow fundamentally different from all other living creatures? So for all of these groups, it's... I think the the thing that all three of those groups often do is that they present it as a clash of ideas and they do that in a way that makes it harder to see that there are broader context behind what they're, what they're fighting for. I like your closing comments because uh, I was listening to an interview by John Gray some time ago about his uh, book, Seven Types of Atheism. And he said that uh, when it was, he said that when he was writing the book, he didn't really want to, to, he didn't really want to talk about new atheists simply because, like, especially Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, because they had nothing intellectually new to say since uh, what had already been said in the 19th century. Uh, but anyway, uh, let let's talk about another topic in the book. You 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 raise a very important question in the book that this conflict is sometimes of. Uh, is of a political nature. Sometimes is even of a secular nature, especially in 20th century. And uh, speaking of the political nature of the conflict between science and religion, you have the example of Thomas Paine uh, in the United States. Can you talk about that? And you, and you also in the book you mentioned that he recommended uh, natural theology, let's say, as opposed to religion. So it's not again completely refuting religion. Can you talk about that? How does this story apply? Yeah. Um. So we can talk a bit more about natural theology, I think, later. But natural theology is basically the idea that looking at the natural world can help us discover more about not just God's existence, but what God is like, um, for that matter, whether there's one or many gods, whether God is good, whether God has made apparent any specific moral or political uh, systems that, that we should abide by. Pain is also looking towards nature as a source of evidence for some of those moral and political questions, whether he necessarily thinks that some kind of a God is behind it all. Um, Pain is writing at a time when people are talking quite a lot about deism, the idea that there is sort of a impersonal God that 
created everything, but then does not intervene in any kind of ad hoc or kind of ongoing way. To be perfectly honest, the everything that I've seen has suggested that deism existed more often in the minds of people who were opposed to it than as an actual living theory that very many people ever subscribed to. There were probably a few people who self-identified as deist, but very, very few. Paine is probably one of the people who comes closest to that in his political philosophy and the idea that the world is, is created with a certain natural order, but that the established religious powers that suggest, for example, that loyalty to a king is a God-given moral expectation, or the right of a king to govern is a divine right, um, that these are misapplications of understanding truths about the world, and that the truths about the world that we see um, come to us through the use of our reason and through the observation of the world around us. And this could be justified religiously by saying that if there was a creator, if there was a creator of humanity who had an interest in human well-being, that creator endowed human beings with the capacity for reason, and so therefore it makes sense that we would make use of it. Pain, of course, is one of the most important sort of intellectual um, scene setters for the American independence movement becomes the founding of the United States. And to some extent, his ideas are perhaps best reflected in the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Um, I often point out that one of the most controversial claims in that document is often passed by completely unremarked. Uh, One of the most famous lines in the U.S. Declaration of Independence, of course, is we hold the is to say, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and so on. And people have pointed out the hypocrisy of this, that this was written by somebody who held the people enslaved, that, of course, the statement, all men are created equal, seems to not necessarily include women. Uh, But everybody sort of skips over the phrase that these truths are self-evident, That's actually a really important epistemological claim. It's a claim about a theory of knowledge. And to some extent, that's the kind of claim that Thomas Paine is making, that there are certain kinds of truth that are for which the evidence we have is found within ourselves, is found within the fact that we are capable of being rational and thinking about it, gives us the evidence of our own rationality and of the capacity. So when we say that all people are created equal, it is in the ability to recognize the rational capacity that I have and you have and everyone else has that we find that evidence. This whole idea of self-evidence is incredibly radical at the time. And nowadays, you know, United States and the United States school children are taught to recite Declaration of Independence. And quite honestly, that phrase just just goes kind of formulaically off the lips without anybody giving thought about that that particular I mean, there's a lot of other important things to unpack in that document, but self-evidence is a really strange 
striking claim, especially from the point of view of science and religion. Religious truths are rarely self-evident, and for that matter, neither are scientific truths. Scientific truths require evidence outside the self. Religious truths, especially if they are expected to be revealed from God or found within scriptures, are also not self-evident. So this idea that self-evidence is is a capable form of evidence, is a, is a form of evidence that can't be questioned because everyone has it, is, is striking. To some extent, that's the kind of evidence that natural theology and the kind of deistic movements that aren't necessarily the same but are somewhat related at this time, um, that's, that's really perhaps the most, most radical part of the philosophy of the time. That there are these these truths that can't be that can't be separated from our ability to know them. Uh, thank you. That was a very good and comprehensive response to the question. Uh, let's talk about two of the let's say emblematic examples of this so-called conflict between science and religion: um, Galileo and Charles Darwin. Let us start with Galileo. And when I was reading the book, there was something. There's something that a lot of us know, but we tend to forget, and it's that the idea that sun is at the center of solar system had already been introduced by Copernicus before, and didn't really get into much trouble. Um, so, my question is, what are the complexities of that story? And because he was first, uh, I guess he was warned in 1616. And then he was uh, brought into Inquisition in 1632, but it wasn't only because of his ideas, because he had written a book in which he had kind of insulted the Pope, who was a close friend of his. There are lots of complexities to that, to that story. So uh, can you shed some light on this story, the complexity of the story of Gal- uh, Galileo? Absolutely. So on one level, this is a story of a man who is a professor of mathematics, Galileo, who becomes the court astronomer to the Medici court, um, who makes use of the relatively recent invention of the telescope to make astronomical observations, and is credited with being the first person to discover the moons of Jupiter, among other things that he is credited with discovering in astronomy. Galileo was aware of the Copernican theory, the system of understanding the order of the planets in which it was not the earth that was at the center of the of the system but rather the sun that was at the center of the system and so all of the heavenly bodies that were not stars all you know all of the planets uh orbited around the sun of course one of the logical issues with that is that it's quite clear that the moon orbits around the earth um, and so why would you have some objects orbit around the sun and others orbit around the earth? So for Galileo, the discovery of moons of Jupiter was actually a, a really important sort of part of the argument, the suggestion essentially that other planets could also have moons. And the fact that the earth had a moon did not necessarily mean that it had to be the center of the whole system. But this wasn't just a scientific, logical argument. These were also arguments, again, that have to do with questions of power and theology and who holds access to various kinds of religious truth. Uh, So on another level, this is a story about Galileo trying to gain 
funding and power and influence, first as a member of the Medici court and later with uh, the powers that be in Rome and in the, in the Catholic Church. As you mentioned, you know, the Pope, one of the, you know, was, was a friend and an ally and a supporter of his researches at one time. Um, and essentially Galileo got drawn into court politics within, within the church. Um, and the question of Galileo's ideas and the, and the trials that were based on those ideas had a lot to do with those particular politics. There's also the broader sort of continent-wide politics of Christianity at the time. Galileo is writing in the sort of first century after the Thirty Years' War, after the wars between Catholic nations and Protestant nations, the outfall from what we call the Protestant Reformation. One of the key theological differences between Catholics and Protestants at the time are questions about who has the authority to read and interpret the Bible. In some of the writing that Galileo makes in order to defend the Copernican position, he anticipates the argument that the Bible makes references to things like Joshua telling the sun to stand still when his people are ravishing the city of Jericho. And clearly, if Joshua needed to ask God for the sun to stand still, then clearly the sun was moving prior to that. That that's the standard interpretation. That's the that's the received interpretation. What Galileo suggests is that essentially that the language in the book of Joshua may not be literal, accurate astronomical language. Um, you know the the somewhat apocryphal line or the, the somewhat sort of summary line is often attributed to Galileo is to say that the, the Bible is supposed to tell us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Even if you accept that Galileo's interpretation of the scriptural lines is correct, and there were certainly some people within the Catholic Church who did, there was a lot of concern that Galileo, as someone who was not trained as a theologian, who was not uh, a doctor of the church, um, was making pronouncements about how to interpret the Bible and doing so in a public way uh, without having the correct positions of training and authority. Um, if you will, it was almost like he was practicing theology without a license. And to some people within the Catholic Church, that looked very Protestant. And to look very Protestant in a Catholic nation still reeling in the aftermath of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation was a major problem. It was something that, that church authority could not tolerate um, because it would undermine much of what the Counter-Reformation had been about. So these were partly a response to the ideas and partly a response to sort of both the local court politics and the broader global politics of what Galileo was getting himself into. Now, whether he was doing this out of ignorance, out of ego, out of spite, I don't, there, there have been various historical interpretations and I'm not a Galileo expert. We, we draw from the work of several Galileo experts, you know, to, to sort of summarize some of the story in the book. Um, but for us, it, 
we take away the broader picture that this isn't just about whether it's whether Galileo was right that the earth goes around the sun. It was never just about that. It was a question about who could be a credible source of knowledge and what it meant to justify those claims. Some of the objections that people raised to Galileo's observations and his interpretations of those were justified objections. Um, Not everyone could see the Galilean moons through the telescope. So there is a huge question. We know that when you use a telescope on Earth, if you look out to sea, you can see ships, and they look really tiny if you look without the telescope. You look with the telescope, they look bigger. So we know that the telescope works to magnify things that are already there. But if you couldn't see the moons of Jupiter at all, how do you know that the things that you're claiming to see through the telescope are objects that actually exist or artifacts that the telescope itself is somehow introducing? Um, these are epistemological questions. These are questions about the philosophy of science and the philosophy of knowledge that to some extent are still with us, certainly not necessarily with Galileo's telescope, but when we're looking at debates about the existence of things like dark matter and dark energy, or what it means to interpret the things that we see, um, in particle collisions, because these are not things that we can directly detect. These are not things that we directly observe. And so one of the things that we say is that Galileo is actually a really good way to introduce what in the philosophy of science are these questions of realism and anti-realism, which are debates that live with us today. And another fascinating part of this story was that um, uh, Pope was shifting his allegiance from the French um, so he had to like show to his his, his uh, soon-to-be, let's say, allies that he, he meant business. So he had to be tough with anybody who was undermining the authority of, uh, of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, you know, it's. I don't want to say it's all politics because I think the question of does the sun go around the Earth or the other way around is an important question. It's a question that that matters, but. It's a question that is only asked for certain political reasons. Um, the decision to even ask the question as sort of a is is sort of a a mark of political affiliation. I mean, nowadays I think we see other cultural questions or scientific questions that only come up by people who have certain political views and want to validate those views. Uh, let's let's talk about Darwin and evolution. Uh, in the book, you write that this whole idea of evolution being against the scripture sort of emerged in the second half of 20th century rather than in the 19th century. So there were critics, uh, there were people who opposed evolution in the 19th century, but it was only maybe a marginal movement. Can you um, can you talk about that uh, topic a bit more? Absolutely. So you're right to say that. Theories of evolution, theories that human beings both change over time like other creatures do, um, and in particular that human beings may have descended from non-human ancestors, were deeply controversial and had major theological implications uh, that you didn't even really need to point to the Bible to justify. Um 
the idea that human beings have a certain moral sense or that they have some kind of immaterial selves that will experience an afterlife, the idea that there are moral rights and wrongs seems to be, if not impossible to justify, at least different to justify in an evolutionary context. And so if you look at the 19th century at people who are both accepting and not accepting Darwin or finding it compatible with their religious worldview or not, these are often the kinds of debates, these debates about essentially whether human beings are created in God's image, uh, questions about whether or not the evolutionary origins mean that human beings are distinct and special and whether or not we have some sort of immaterial parts of ourselves, some kind of soul. Um, what you don't find a lot of are people who are saying that the problem with Darwin's theory of evolution is that the earth is only 6,000 years old because that's the chronology given by the Bible. Almost none of the people in the 19th century who are writing against Darwinism are treating that as a serious concern or a serious criticism. Probably the most common argument, I think, is one that that Charles Hodge writes about in a, in a book called What is Darwinism? And essentially what he says is that Darwinism presupposes that all change happens naturally. And so therefore it, as a, as a starting point, rules out the possibility of miracle. It makes assumptions about gradual change that mean that you couldn't have something sudden and directly intervened by God. And so by assuming that miracles can't happen, assuming that the creation of humanity is not a miraculous thing, um, undermines the possibility of other miracles, specifically the miracles of revealing scripture. And if you presuppose that miracles don't exist, you are presupposing that there's no space for God. So for Hodge, the conclusion is Darwinism is atheism. There are other religious thinkers who absolutely disagree. People like Charles Kingsley, people like Henry Ward Beecher in the United States, um, who find the idea of a God who could have created humanity in the form that it's in today, with all of its amazing intellectual and spiritual accomplishments, by creating a world that could gradually unfold all of these things, rather than having to basically ad hoc create each thing separately, to them this is a, a vision of a more powerful God. It's also a, a picture of a God who is creating a world that is gradually getting better and sort of building up to what some would call the kingdom of heaven on earth. Um, someone like Henry Ward Beecher, for example, I think is fascinating because he interprets all of history in this evolutionary theological context, um, you know, sort of arguing that previously, you know, People fought with one another just like animals or uncivilized, you know, barbarians would, but that gradually civilization was brought to, came to people and the kinds of reasons why people fought became more moral and more justified. And this is someone, I mean, Henry Ward Beecher, you know, is in the same family as Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a family of abolitionists. This is a family who was opposing the propagation and the continuation of slavery in the United States. 
to him, the fact that the United States had just fought a massive war for the purpose of eradicating slavery was proof to him that even in our most uncivilized moments, we were becoming more civilized. And there may be reasons to question that inter- that specific interpretation, but for him, Darwinism is an explanation for this, that we are gradually improving, we are gradually getting better. We're not, we're not perfected yet, but we are in a state of constant perfecting and re-perfecting. And Darwinism sort of provides an apparatus for understanding both where we're going and why we're not there yet, and interpreting that in a theological frame. In the 20th century, the the pushback against Darwinism becomes more explicitly expressed in biblical language. And a lot of this has to do with the controversy over Darwin as a subject in in schools for children. Um, and I've written more about this in my first book that I that I had written before this, but we talk a bit about this in, in our chapter on Darwin now, which is to say it wasn't the case that people suddenly got upset about evolution in the 1910s and 20s in the United States. It's that in the 1910s and 20s, there was a massive overhaul of the high school science curriculum and that was why evolution was being taught for the very first time. Um, to go into a bit more detail, if you were in a high school science class in the United States, there weren't as there certainly weren't as many then as there are now. But if you had gone into a high school science class in the late 19th century, typically in the life sciences, students would have taken half a year of botany and half a year of zoology, maybe a little bit of human physiology sort of thrown in at the end. In the early part of the 20th century, educators you know, and, and scientists sort of worked together to create a new way that organized the life sciences that said, you know, plants and animals actually have a lot in common. They both are made of cells. They both make use of the principles of metabolism, the principles of heredity, the principles of evolution. So let's teach life sciences as one integrated subject that has these sort of core concepts heavily featured. Now, there were political reasons for that new curriculum. A lot of that had to do with the integration of new immigrant groups in the United States, the idea that teaching about the life sciences was a a way to bring public health into the schools. And there were objections to that that didn't necessarily have to rest with the Bible. But these political movements that were wary about schools becoming tools of industrial modernity were aware of the fact that there were religious objections to the Bible, or I'm sorry, religious objections to Darwin, and then began to focus on Darwinism as the things that schools were teaching and use it, leveraging that to sort of build up support for a movement that was honestly a movement that opposed the expansion of public schooling in the United States altogether. To some extent, that that movement is still alive and well today with the controversies over school subjects that continue to dominate our headlines, um, not just in science, but in history and in other, in, in other fields as well now. But the anti-evolution movement of the 1920s found its voice in part um, – by sort of co-opting a caricature of creationism 
that wasn't very heavily subscribed previously, but which had often been been suggested, which was that the reason why people didn't like Darwin was because the Earth was only 6,000 years old. You had very, very few people in the 19th century arguing that the age of the Earth was a major problem. I'm sure that if you asked somebody how old the Earth was, they might have said 6,000 years or something like that. But the truth is, is that that wasn't the question people were often asking, and they weren't asking it in relation to Darwinism. It was in the 1920s with events like the Scopes trial and the aftermath of that trial that the debate about what we now call biblical literalism became more centered in that discussion. Yeah, and, and uh, you also talk about uh, that famous book, Principles of Geology, which was published before Darwin. And yeah, there, rightly speaking, I mean, historically speaking, there wasn't really a lot of contention about the age of the earth, maybe in the 19th century as it was in the 20th century. Uh, and let, let's talk about Darwin a little bit more. A lot of people assume that Darwin began to lose his religious faith or he was an atheist, but he had to hide his atheism. Uh, I mean, it was mainly because of his discoveries. But uh, would you actually give, a, let's say, a more nuanced picture of his religious beliefs? And the interesting thing is that that very famous sentence at the end of his book, he does talk about a creator, especially in the second edition that you also point out. He uses the word creator. So can you talk about his re- religious ideas or and also was his scientific expeditions and his discovery and his theory of evolution responsible for that uh, declining faith you know i think that this question is very important to some people and that's why we find it important to address in the book there's sort of this assumption that if darwin himself lost faith then that's proof that the theories of evolution are poisonous to religious faith and so this is often brought up by religious anti-evolutionists who say look this is dangerous this will damage your children look what it did to the man who invented it and so the legacy of darwin's personal spiritual journey has become a sort of historical proxy for the broader fight. If science and religion fought inside Darwin's brain for 50 years and science eventually won and it destroyed him, then that's telling us a story about who ought to win the conflict between religion and science. And I think for that reason, biographers of Charles Darwin people who have written quite a lot on on Darwin's sort of personal intellectual and, and mental journey have have wrestled deeply with these questions with the available evidence which includes his writings the writings of people who were personally friends with him and his correspondence you know there's a certain sense of which we can say do we ever know what is truly in the hearts of these individuals And there are debates about how we interpret some of the things that he wrote in his own autobiography or in some of his letters that weren't published until long after his death, including sections of his autobiography that weren't published until a century after his death. Versions of his autobiography were were re-released around the centenary of his birth. Um, 
what does seem to be pretty clear is that Darwin had a lot of personal psychological reasons to experience what we might call a crisis of faith. As we point to in the book, the death of his father and then shortly after that, the death of his daughter really shook his belief in a world that was good and providential. Um, Darwin was very heavily influenced by the work of the natural theologian William Paley. Paley is perhaps most famous for writing the analogy of the watchmaker, that if you find the watch, you would look at it and determine that there had been some sort of purpose behind its creation. Paley's work was required reading at Cambridge. It was, you know, quite honestly, probably one of the most important books in English intellectual culture throughout the entire 19th century. It also became widely misinterpreted as a result. And I think partly because in the 20th century, when historians of Darwin were trying to construct a narrative about Darwin's faith, they find a line in his autobiography in which he says the arguments that Paley put forward in his natural theology, which were once so convincing to me, no longer felt as compelling in light of evolution. And people assume that that's Paley's argument that some sort of God exists. I don't personally think that that's the right interpretation because I think that if you look at what Darwin's talking about in that context, and if you look at what Paley was actually saying, Paley was less interested in proving that God exists and more interested in proving things about the God who exists, namely proving that that God was good, that that God had some sort of interest in humanity, that there was only one God for that matter. Um, And perhaps one of the most distinctive things about Paley's natural theology was his view that nature itself seem to be designed in order to maximize the well-being of the natural world. To him, nature was a testament towards a for a kind of spiritual utilitarianism, that God had created the world in order to maximize the well-being and happiness of its creation. And and Darwin actually loves this. And in, in the in the Origin of Species, the one time Paley is mentioned by name. Darwin is using him to support an argument against the idea that natural selection is wasteful and causes inherent suffering or unnecessary suffering. He basically says, Paley has shown no creature evolves any kind of structure that is injurious to itself. That's the one time Paley is mentioned by name in The Origin of Species, and it's highly supportive citation. I think that when there's that line in the autobiography that says that Darwin is no longer convinced by Paley's argument, it's not that he's necessarily no longer convinced by Paley's argument about the existence of God. It's that he's no longer convinced by Paley's argument that nature acts sort of providentially for the well-being of all creation. He's lost that sense of, of optimism. He's lost that sense that, that nature is sort of fundamentally good. And it's understandable to see that both uh, as an outgrowth of the suffering he encountered in his own life, Um, again, particularly things like the death of his daughter, I think are weighing very heavily upon him. And the idea that she would suffer and die at a young age really troubled him. But also he did see evidence in nature of what to him seemed like 
indifferent cruelty of one creature towards another. He talks a bit about the example of parasites that lay their eggs in the still living bodies of other animals um, so that their eggs will hatch and, and consume this other creature. And it's like, he said, this seems grotesque. This seems cruel and, and awful. Um, does that mean that that causes him to lose his faith or to change the nature of his faith? You know, only God and Darwin, him, Darwin himself would necessarily know for certain, right? Um, to me, the question is more interesting is, is why does Darwin's personal faith journey matter so much to so many other people? Um, and how does the, the legacy of Darwin's faith journey um, get used and abused so much um, even today? This idea that Darwinism turns people into atheists is used as a, you know, that it corrupts the youth. It turns them away from their church. It turns them away from traditional religion. Um, it is often cited as an excuse and a reason not to teach it. Not whether it's right or wrong, but it's sort of spiritual and emotional impact on people. Um, I actually wanted to ask you some questions about uh, about anti-evolution movement in, in 20th century, but you did uh, talk about that, so I'm glad you actually anticipated my questions. <laughs> um, there is a very important part of the book and uh, that I hadn't seen in other books, and that is that apart, I mean, in, in not only science and religion weren't really in conflict, but as a matter of fact, they worked in collaboration or work in harmony to promote the cause of the British Empire or imperialism in general uh, can to, to, to maybe to, to, to justify the moral or intellectual superiority of the colonizer. So and that's an, uh, that's a part that, that's a topic that you discuss in chapter six. So can you tell us how, how, how is this binary thinking about science and religion a part of a colonial legacy? Absolutely. And for us, I think this was one of the more important things to try to explore in this book. Um, one of the troubles that we, we frequently encounter with the history of science and religion is that it's a history that is almost entirely focused on, on Europe, on North America, on sort of the English-speaking world especially. Um, and there are historically legitimate reasons to do that, which is to say that the modern distinction between religion and science as specific ways of thought or categorizing the kinds of and you know academic or more intellectual enterprises that they are have very specific historical origins that that take root in the 18th and 19th century in Europe where these ideas are being separated and sort of lines of separation are being drawn intellectually disciplinarily between those um, and to some extent what historians have tried to do in trying to make stories about the global history of science and religion have have been to take those categories and to try to fit them, perhaps in some cases unnaturally, into events in the past and events in other parts of the world in which those categories did not organically evolve in the same way. Right. So yes, you can look at pre-colonial India. You could look at traditions in various parts of the 
Americas prior to European sustained European contact and say, here are elements that we would consider to be scientific. Here's theories of health. Here's theories of healing. Here's theories of, of how the environment works. Here's how, you know, people in the ancient world understood the stars. And we would look at that and say, that's science. And then we might also look at certain things, certain ritualized practices, temples, sites, and structures, and say, and those event things are religion. But just like it turns out that, that science and religion weren't always clearly separated in Europe, uh, they're not clearly separated in many of these other places. What seems to have happened sort of intellectually, historically, is that once the separation of science and religion became sort of the intellectual mode of European intellectual culture in, let's say, the 18th and 19th centuries. The fact that other places did not necessarily segregate religion from science in the same way became seen as evidence of their failure to intellectually evolve or to be as intellectually sophisticated as Europeans themselves did. Um even though this was an artificial this was an artificial intellectual category creation in the first place it's been very influential um making the kinds of claims about nature fit the mold that was accepted as science was a it was a hegemonic enterprise it was an effort to sort of impose order and it was a tool that was used in creating colonial governments and colonial nation states. Um, we do talk a bit, for example, about the way that European colonizers banned certain health practices in colonial Africa. Um, even though those may or may have been more efficacious because they weren't seen as based on a principle of scientific medicine. They were seen as based on religious superstition and then it becomes even more complicated because often it was the case that the Western scientific medicine medical you know, was was being administered by missionary organizations supported by these colonizing powers. Um, and so the issue wasn't necessarily that healing practices that indigenous cultures made use of were religious, but that they were, from the point of view of the, the European colonizers, the wrong religion. And... So what we see in the case of things like medical missionaries and what we see in some other places where academies are being built and schools are being sort of developed is that Western disciplines and categories of thought are being forced into the world in a way that sort of forces everyone else to adapt the intellectual traditions that have existed already and sort of recalibrate them to fit the the existing traditional disciplines that that you know that were given to them, and so that becomes a tool for colonial power. It it, it allows it allows in you know what we now sometimes refer to as indigenous knowledge or indigenous science to be dismissed as not really being science, and we see that historically, especially during the the age of of colonialism when when much of africa and much of asia was subjected to colonial hegemony and we see it today in 
the way that indigenous rights movements are often finding their knowledge claims um, about biology, about astronomy, um, supplanted. And the way, you know, one of the examples that we talk about in that last chapter, you know, we start the book by talking about Galileo and Galileo's telescope. We end the we we end the book with the with a chapter that begins with the controversy over the building of the thirty meter telescope, which is proposed to be built in Hawaii on land that is considered sacred by indigenous Hawaiians, and the way that the scientific establishment has sometimes dismissed the concerns of these indigenous protesters by characterizing the nature of their objections as religious, and in some cases, even drawing comparisons to themselves as Galileo and the religious ideas of these, you know, historically very oppressed people um, as, you know, religious oppressors, as if it was the Catholic church sentencing Galileo to jail, which is absurd from a, from the point of view of power dynamics, from the point of view of history, it is purely absurd. And yet it shows how science and religion has just become a way that we see the world that gets co-opted again and again and then still um, affects our public policy in ways that we we can't always anticipate. Uh, that, that example was absolutely fine. I, I didn't know about that uh, controversy that you mentioned until I came across that in the book. Um, there is another important uh topic in the book that uh, that you discuss, and that's science denialism, which is usually sometimes, or sometimes misconstrued as a conflict between again, science and religion or anti-science. So what is science denialism, and how, where do you draw the line between this conflict thesis and science denialism? And maybe I should ask this question as well, uh, that you mentioned that den- denying science or denying science is sometimes actually secular, not really religious. Yeah, it's it's an ongoing question, and I think it's a question it's a question that we felt needed to be discussed and that we wanted to raise, but that I think perhaps it's impossible to give a settled answer to. But for us, the interesting thing was that accusations of science denial, uh, whether that is denying the scientific validity of human caused climate change or you know scientific uh, or rejection of the science behind vaccination um, or other forms of science denial have often but not always been framed as rooted in religious or irrational thought even though there are some clearly documented instances in which the motivations for what we call science denials seem to be very expressly secular. So a number of historians who we cite in the book and, and we draw in their work to talk about this have pointed out that or you know, industries from big oil to big tobacco have deliberately planted doubt about the dangers of their products not for any kind of religious reason, but for financial reasons, for reasons of shielding themselves from legal liability. Um, And whether that was casting doubt on the idea that tobacco products cause cancer or that oil burning leads to global warming, um, 
this was something that was was very explicitly kind of created on purpose. Um, we also talk about the you know the notorious fraud of Andrew Wakefield and the falsified study published in the Lancet that claimed that the MMR vaccination caused autism in various children. And the fact that there has not only been a retraction of that fraud, but that there were clear financial incentives that were motivating that fraud. What's fascinating is is that to some extent, those kinds of secular forms of science denial sometimes find fertile ground in places where religion is framed as as a way to object to science. So especially in the case of anti-vaccination movements, there have been some religious objections to vaccination that go back for centuries. And the strength of those objections, the the population that has supported or opposed it, has, has waxed and waned over time. And the specific religious groups that have robustly explained theological reasons for their objections to vaccination also change over time. Um, but what's interesting is that in some cases, those religious groups immediately seized on things like Wakefield's study as validation of their religious views and others. And, and the, uh, and the other thing that we saw happen, and we saw this happen, especially during the rise of the COVID pandemic was that states that had provided mechanisms for religious freedom objections to vaccination saw people starting to use those, even though it was often the case, especially in relation to COVID that the motivations for those objections to the vaccine probably weren't originally religious in origin. Um, Writing about the pandemic was really fascinating because when we first started working on this book, it hadn't started yet. We certainly couldn't have anticipated the way that it played out. Um, And what we saw was really an extraordinary range of religious responses to the COVID-19 pandemic Um, We saw resilient communities that were adapting their practices, adapting their theology in order to keep members of their congregations safe. Um, You know, we saw examples of Orthodox Jews who don't typically make use of electronic devices on holy days, finding rationales for exceptions to that policy in order to allow people to continue to practice in a safe way. We saw postponements of of the Hajj. You know, we saw things that, that showed that religious groups make use of science all the time. We also saw instances in which people expressed religious objections, not necessarily to the fact that COVID existed, but to the restrictions that were placed on them uh, by the state or by local authorities, um, claiming that it violated their religious freedoms. And... Um... I only have two more questions, and uh, one of them, I guess, is significant to talk about, and uh, that's you, you discuss it uh, in your last chapter, page 128, the significance of Keyford lectures. Um, that's where Holmes Ralston, uh, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Holmes Ralston III, uh, you know, plays an important role in creating eco-theology. And I, when I, I, I did my PhD thesis on eco-criticism, and I came across eco-theology, which was a fascinating topic. So can you talk about the significance of Holmes Rothstein's uh, contribution to this field? Yeah. 
And and Ralston isn't the only person. He's he's one of the people credited with sort of creating this as an intellectual field, and that's a very important thing. But to some extent, these ideas that Ralston sort of brought into the Western Christian mainstream are ideas that exist in other religious cultures as well. But they essentially argue that the protection of nature is both an ethically necessary um, part of our mandate, our human mandate to preserve the created world, whether you believe that's because God created the world in a specific way. Um, But also, I think one of the real revolutionary things about Ralston compared to some other Christian environmentalists is this idea that the environment itself has certain sort of moral claims to its to its protection, just as just as other creatures and, and other people have a moral right to be protected from harm, that nature itself has a right like that. Um, there's a long history of Christian environmentalism. Um, but the reasons for Christian environmentalism come from a lot of different places. Sometimes that's about preserving natural spaces with the expectation that natural places exist as a kind of, if you will, repository of knowledge, a tool that human beings can use to get access to God that, um, you know, to kind of, to, to, to kind of take that sort of ideal that Thoreau put out, like I went out into the woods because I wish to live deliberately. Uh, this idea that you could, that, you know, one immerses themselves in nature in order to better get a connection to God. That's very human purpose centered vision of that kind of theology of, of that kind of environmentalism. What Ralston is doing and, and what others have also done is to, to argue that, the conservation of nature isn't just for human sake, but is for the sake of the world itself, and that the world itself has something like stakes, moral stakes. That's that's very important, and it's it is something that you know we see. I think some even movements that don't necessarily accept the reality of human caused climate change being willing to accept at least at the local level at a conservation level as a as a as a form of stewardship um but again these are also ideas that you know the ideas that nature itself has certain moral rights or has certain spiritual realities that need to be respected um exist in a lot of other religions as well it's not like ralston invented this entirely of whole cloth but he did i think provide a foundation for it that appeals to a a, a population that didn't necessarily already hear it. Um, and as you mentioned, this was some an idea that he spent a lot of time writing on, and this became part of his Gifford lectures. You know, one of the other things that we do talk about is that there are things like the Gifford lectures, things like other um, academic lecture series, lectureships, positions that have turned science and religion into a field. I think that when you when you have the word and in the middle of something, you sort of assume that it's interdisciplinary, that it's people from one side and people from another side getting together and having a dialogue between them about where they might relate to each other. But increasingly, science and religion, even though it still has that compound name, is itself a field in its own right, with a history, with methods, um, with 
a series of intellectual approaches and increasingly with dedicated courses of study, with dedicated um, professorships in that field. And what Thomas and I hope to provide is now a, a dedicated introductory book to the subject. Yeah, and it's a very good book to that subject. Uh, my last question is just a speculative question, and I usually ask historians of science and religion. Uh, and I'm guessing it's a question that a lot of people have in mind as well. Uh, do you think religion will ever go away? I think that religion constantly evolves. I think that what we choose to define as what counts as religion is also always changing. Um you know, various forms of cultural expression look very different than they have in the past. So the the short answer is no. Will it necessarily look the same as it looked today or the way it looked 100 years ago or the way it looked 500 years ago? I doubt it. Um, And to some extent, science and technology will play a major role in how religions evolve. Um, you know, I was I was asked if there was a topic I wish we had had more time to talk about in this very short introduction, and I said that one topic I'd like to see more discussion about is the influence of technology on religious practices. Um, you know, certain religious practices like camp revivals and these kinds of summer outdoor meetings that took place outside of hierarchical churches, to some extent, they evolved in the 19th century and at because technologies like air conditioning didn't exist and people didn't want to go to church in the hot summer. On the other hand, the huge mega churches, which now dominate the Christian landscape in the United States, could only exist in a world that is you know, governed by air conditioning. You couldn't have church buildings that large in the spaces where they exist if you didn't have climate control like that. So it's just a very, which is a very mundane example of how technology affects religious practices. And I think we've seen even more stunning examples in recent years with, you know, churches meeting online with religious communities that are geographically diffuse, but which make use of social media to spread ideas and to maintain a sense of community with one another. What's religion going to look like in the future? I don't know, but it will be there. (laughs) Adam Shapiro, thank you very much for your time. I absolutely enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. It was a great time.